big idea this morning is this, that God hears the intercession of his chosen one. As we look at this passage this morning in the book of Genesis, verses 18 and 19, we see the precursor of an intercessor in Abraham. And when we look at this, we see this, that God hears the intercessory prayer of his chosen one, and he listens to that, and he responds. We're going to see this in three different phases. God visits Abraham in verses 18, or in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 18. In verses 16 through 33, um, Abraham kind of intercedes before God. And then in verses 19 through, uh, 19, 1 through 29, uh, God preserves Lot out of faithfulness to Abraham. Now, here's the deal. We have a ton of passage in front of us this morning. And so just so I don't keep you here for two hours, we're going to kind of just survey these things, kind of lightly retell the story and draw attention to specific passages. Um, We'll be summarizing these things quite a bit, but inviting you to look at the highlights with us here this morning as we kind of investigate what God has for us. So I'm going to invite you first into chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, where we see that God visits Abraham. And if we were to read verses 1 through 8, we would see that that Abraham's about to lay down and take his afternoon siesta, right? That's a beautiful thing. Abraham is about to just go to take a nap in the afternoon, and he looks up, and on the horizon there are these three visitors in verse 2. And this kind of sets off this frenetic pace for Abraham uh, from verse 2 all the way through verse 8. Abraham goes and, and convinces these visitors that he might stay with them, that they might have what he calls a morsel of bread, that they might rest before moving on. And so sure enough, they agree, and he starts just breaking out the feast. He cooks some 20 quarts worth of flour, uh, to, to make some light morsel of bread, as he calls it. He kills a calf. He um, makes some curds and milk, all of this in verses 6, 7, and 8 to show Abraham is quite the host. He's the Martha Stewart of the Old Testament, apparently. But what happens then in verses 9 through 15 is that the Lord kind of starts to speak. And even at this point, we don't even know if, if Abraham is even recognizing uh, the Lord in the midst of all of this. But in verse 9 through 15, it becomes more obvious. Look at verse 9 with me. They said to him, where is Sarai, your wife, or Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. It's kind of this awkward little interaction that happens between the Lord and Sarah. Sarah kind of hears this, and she laughs. Now, before we judge Sarah too harshly, just remember last week, Abraham also laughed. And in 1717, he laughed at the prospect of having a child at nearly 100 years old, And she lays out the absurdity herself. And in verse 12, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Uh, She highlights the utter impossibility. You know, newsflash, it's not like 90-year-olds get pregnant very often, right? And so this is kind of highlighting just the nature of the absurdity of the situation. But notice the Lord's response. He says, is there anything too hard 
for the Lord. One commentator says that it's the equivalent of saying, is there anything too supernatural for God? God created man and woman. Therefore, he can suspend the rules of procreation as he sees fit. And this is exactly what God does when he performs the miraculous. He temporarily suspends the the laws that kind of order our universe. And this is what he plans to do with Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. In fact, these words might kind of sound familiar to us, right? If we were in Luke chapter 1 and we were kind of recounting the story of Mary, uh, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, in this first account in chapter 18, what we see is that Abraham enjoys this unique relationship with God. James 2 says this. He says that Abraham was a friend of God. He enjoys this unique relationship with God himself. He eats his, God eats Abraham's food. He sits in his tent. He promises him these magnificent things. Who else has this relationship with God like Abraham does? Who else hears these wonderful promises that Abraham does? But the truth is that God has uniquely revealed himself to Abraham so that he might also reveal himself to us. We saw back in chapter 12 that part of God's promise to Abraham was that he would bless the nations through him. Well, guess what we represent? We represent those nations that God was going to bless through, his, through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. And here, as God promises a son to Abraham, he moves in his blessing toward you and I. Just as Abraham serves the Lord a meal in his tent, we're also promised to dine with Christ, to, to rest with him in his tents, in his presence forever. But really, this passage kind of uses this as a, as a setup scenario. See, what Genesis 18 and 19 record is a 24-hour period for us that we have to just kind of reflect on. And this initial blessing is kind of like the serene start to a story, right? It's the serene start where God shows up on the scene and promises Abraham and Sarah a child. And then from here, everything kind of just devolves into something a little bit more crazy. And so when we start in verses 16 through 33, and we see that God moves Abraham to intercede, we see that the story starts to crumble a little bit. Look with me at verses 16 through 21. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. See, In verse 16 through 18, God kind of verbally deliberates with himself. And he says this in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 18, he says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. But notice the reason for telling in verse 19. I've I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Righteousness and justice. 
See, God is giving Abraham an education and justice and righteousness so that he might pass it on to his children. There's kind of this refresher course for Abraham here saying, this is what justice and righteousness is. I'm going to give you a clinic, as it were, to show you what this justice looks like, to show you what this righteousness looks like. And in verses 20 through 21, he shows Abraham exactly what he's going to do. He says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I'm going to go down, I'm going to inspect exactly what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens out of this is that Abraham starts to press God. In verses 22 through 33, Abraham inspects the righteousness and justice of God. Look at verses 22 through 26 with me. Excuse me, that's not right. I got turned around in my notes. Excuse me. In verse 27, look at what he says. Abraham answered and said, uh, again, I'm turned around. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for, for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the, right, the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake." See, the two men leave. They head towards Sodom and toward Gomorrah, but, but Abraham stands in the presence of God. And the language actually implies they stand bef- he stands before the face of God. He raises his objection in verse 23. He says, will indeed you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And from here, Abraham continues to press at God on how many righteous people are necessary for God not to destroy these cities. He starts with 50, and then he takes 45 in verse 28, then 40 in verse 29, and then 30, and then 20, and finally he kind of stops at 10 in verse 32. If there's 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, will you still destroy it? See, Abraham is inspecting the character of God. What exactly is it in God, this mix of righteousness and justice? How devoted is God to bringing justice? Will he bother saving the righteous? It's important to remember, too, that there's a question beneath the question. You ever have a conversation like that where someone's coming to you and they're asking a question, but there's probably something deeper underneath of it? The real question that Abraham's asking is, are you going to kill my nephew Lot? Because that's where he is. He's in Sodom right now. Is Lot about to die? Essentially, Abraham is looking and saying, God, are you okay with civilian casualties? See, as we kind of look at this more closely in in chapter 18, we might even see that God initiates Abraham's investigation. See, when God deliberates with himself in verse 17 through 18, God is moving Abraham to see righteousness and justice. Then we see Abraham respectfully questioning God's righteousness and justice. So it leads us to to conclude that God has revealed his intention for Sodom and Gomorrah so that Abraham might intercede 
on their behalf. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That God has initiated his plan with Abraham so that Abraham might start to question, might start to say, how many righteous people have to be in this city for you not to destroy it? See, God has always raised up those who speak to him on behalf of others. God has this long history of raising up intercessors. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see it uh, later on in the life of Moses. In Exodus chapter 32, uh, the, the Israelites have created this golden calf, right? You've all seen Charlton Heston get mad at the golden calf situation, right? But the Israelites make this golden calf. They've created this idol. They've broken the commandments that Moses has just received. And when Moses comes down the mountain, he sees that the wrath of God is going to break out against these people. God says that he will cut off his people in Exodus 33. And Moses intercedes on their behalf in Exodus 32 and 34. Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, it said that Samuel cries out to God for, for the nation of Israel. Habakkuk raises questions with God. There's always someone who's raised up as someone who intercedes on behalf, on behalf of the people. What we see next, then, is, is God moves toward these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. God preserves Lot out of faithfulness to Abraham. We see this in, in chapter 19. See, as we start off in chapter 19, we, we look in and, and these angels arrive, arrive in the city and Lot kind of intercepts them at the city gate. Uh, he, he cuts them off at the pass, as it were. He catches them and he's, he invites them into his house. He's pressing them, say, come stay at my house. Some, come stay the night at my house. Don't sleep here in, in the city gate. Don't sleep in the town square. Come into my home. Uh, Lot keeps pressing. And we have to stop and we have to say, why is Lot pressing them to not stay in the city square? Why is Lot so concerned about them staying at his house? What happens in verses 4 through 11 is that the men of Sodom try to rape the angels but are struck blind. Right? These angels have come into the city. Lot has moved them aside into his house. And, and now verses, verse 4 says this, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrendered or surrounded the house. Excuse me. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, them, or let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping at the door. And what a scene this is. We, we get the sense of the wickedness of, of the city of Sodom that... These angels come into Lot's house and this crowd kind of gathers surrounding and saying, we want to know these men. And it's not like a Q&A that they're talking about here. In fact, this has worked uh, throughout the book of Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve, that uh, Seth knew his wife and they had children. 
Uh, they're talking about a, a sexual act. These men of uh, Sodom intend to rape the angels that have come into their city. Let's just talk about this for a second because, you know, a lot of times we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and we think about homosexuality and the condemnation of homosexuality. We know from the scriptures that homosexuality is wrong from Genesis 19 all the way to, through the book of Leviticus to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There is just a constant unilateral condemnation of, of homosexuality. And these forbidding statements are made to vastly different churches or cultures across a thousand years. And so it's not just this, God condemns it in this culture, but doesn't condemn it here. God has unilaterally condemned it throughout the Bible. And while homosexuality is, is marked as a sin, we, we might stop and say, hey, it's just another of a, of a whole group of sexual sins that many of us, all of us, would, would probably, if we were honest with ourselves, define ourselves as sexual sinners. If we were honest with ourselves, we would see that we have a sexual history that stands opposite of what God would design for us and, and wish for us. See, in all actuality, Genesis 19 is not about homosexuality. It's about a God who, who brings, sometimes he brings justice and sometimes he brings grace. Genesis 18 and 19 are all about God's grace and his justice. And all of us likely deserve his justice, but some of us find ourselves recipients of God's grace. See, what we're going to press into here is that Lot is going to be an undeserving recipient of God's grace and mercy. And that's the true story of Genesis 19. See, it's here that we find out a lot about who Lot is. We find out a lot about Lot, right? First, Lot is, is he's pretty integrated here in the city of Sodom. He likely wouldn't have been the one standing in the city gate if he wasn't some type of city official. So he, he finds these men as they come in the city gate because he probably has some kind of, of responsibility for the city. He's so integrated that he's involved in that. Further, he, he owns a house in the city. Abraham's still sleeping in tents, but, but Lot has bought a house and has, has kind of integrated himself into this city life. Second, we just take note of Lot's moral decline. Lot offers his daughters to this pressing crowd, and we just have to stop and say, that's not what God would design for his righteous people to do. It, it just all shows us that Lot's moral compass is just a bit off, right? And even as we press into the next phase of the story in verses 12 through 21, we see even more revealed about Lot's character, about how he's kind of integrated uh, the life of Sodom into his own life. He, verse 12 says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law or daughters or anyone uh, you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it, right? There's no mixing words here from the angels. They are very clear. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. His sons-in-law can't even take him seriously. He said, look, this whole place is about to burn. You've got to get up. You've got to get out of here. And they just laugh at him. It goes on in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But look what he says in verse 16. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake Take me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and is a little one. Let me escape there. Is is it not a little one? And my life will be saved? What's going on here? Lot's saying to these angels who are saving his life, who drag him out of the city, he's saying, Hey, I'm not going to last in the hills. I'm kind of a city boy. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm integrated into the social life. I can't go and survive in the hills. This whole thing that I'm watching right now, it's too much for me to bear. I need to be around people. And so he goes to this city, Zor, verse 21. He said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor, which means little we see just the breakdown of, of Lot, right? Lot can't even convince his son-in-laws that the city is going to be destroyed. He, he is convincing the angels to kind of change their plan to accommodate his needs. He's so slow to get out of the city. He lingers. They have to grab him by the hand and drag him out of this city that's going to be destroyed. And what happens in verses 23 through 29 is God does exactly what he said he was going to do. Look with me at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Then Abraham went out early in the morning to to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's as if to say, like like Romans 3 quotes from from the Psalms, it's as if to say uh, Abraham looks out over the horizon and it's saying, there is no one righteous, not even one. Abraham is convinced that his nephew is dead. He is convinced that all has been lost in Sodom and Gomorrah. But if we look carefully, verse 29 unlocks the whole passage for us. Look at verse 29 as Jody read it this morning. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. There it is with the utmost clarity. God saves Lot from destruction because of his faithfulness to Abraham. Isn't that what it said? God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot. God remembers his intercessor. God remembers the chosen one who intercedes on his behalf, and he gives Lot grace. It's God's faithfulness to Abraham that leads to Lot's salvation. Abraham probes God concerning his righteousness and his justice, and God rescues Lot according to his faithfulness to Abraham, not his faithfulness to Lot. So as we look at this story, we find Lot just kind of lukewarm, don't we? 
We find Lot to just be kind of integrated into the city, kind of uh, turned around morally. But when we investigate what the Bible says here in chapter 18 and 19, we find that God delivers Lot because of his faithfulness to Abraham. So God hears the intercession of his chosen servant, doesn't he? See, our salvation also comes because God hears his chosen intercessor. Look at 1 John chapter 2. It's on the screen here behind me. It was. There we go. You messing with me back there? Come on. That's my own son, so I can mess with him. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Listen to this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If, if you sin, if you go out this afternoon or this morning when you were driving the kids in the car and the Cheerios are all over the minivan and everybody's screaming and everybody's fighting with one another and, and you turn back and you just give them the tongue lashing of a lifetime, right? I've never experienced that. If you've sinned this morning, there's an advocate before the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. In fact, Abraham intercedes with God on behalf of the righteous in the city of the Sodom of Sodom. He appeals to what he perceives would be these divine values. Notice what, what Abraham says. He says, "Far be it from you." to destroy the righteous with the wicked, right? Isn't that what he says in, in chapter 18 when he's interceding before God? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away uh, the place uh, and, and not spare uh, the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. You're not like that. That's not your character, God. You wouldn't kill the righteous with the wicked. And so Abraham is making this appeal based upon the character of God. In fact, we see this happen throughout the Old Testament. We see uh, God's intercessors make an appeal to God's character before him. In Exodus 33, verse 16, Moses is appealing on behalf of those Israelites who created the golden calf. He said, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Lord, you want to make your name great on the earth? You have to be faithful to Israel. The psalmist does it in Psalm 44, verse 26. He says this, Redeem us, for the sake of your steadfast love. Why, why should God redeem us? Because he's loving and steadfast. Abraham does the same thing here. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. But it's interesting to note, isn't it, that, that Abraham misses something. This is the statement in verse 25 of Genesis 18. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Is, is Abraham right in his calculation that God would be unwilling to put righteous men to death with wicked men? 
Is he right in that calculation? Is he right in that assessment of God's character? Because there's coming a day when, when God himself, righteous, would die with the wicked. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ himself would stand between two sinners, between two criminals, and he would lay down his life as if he were wicked himself. Abraham's logic is undone at the cross. God himself would be the innocent sufferer. God himself, in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, would lay down his life willingly. He would take on the punishment of wickedness. He would be willing to be crucified in the midst of criminals. He would withstand the accusations of wicked men. The truth is that God the Father was willing to put to death the righteous with the wicked one time. And the truth is that Jesus was the willing sufferer who took on our sinfulness. Jesus was willing to be the righteous one who suffered. Now we see with God's justice and his grace, don't we? I mean, think about this. Someday Abraham is going to see Lot again. We don't get to see that recorded in the scriptures. But someday Abraham's going to know that Lot was alive. We don't even know if that time has happened yet. But Abraham would know that, that, that God was both just and gracious. God brought the full justice of his wrath against sin in Sodom but that he delivered Lot. You and I have a unique perspective on God as those who are recipients of grace. We see that God brings full justice for our sin at the cross. He has fully paid it. And yet he has brought us grace in Christ. See, our God is full of grace and truth. He is both just and righteous. And as much as those two things seem as impossibilities for us to kind of bring together, that's exactly what happens. You might stop and say, okay, that's great, Jason. What does all this mean? How do we kind of bring this home? What does this mean for my Monday morning tomorrow or my Sunday afternoon today? What does this mean for us? It really pushes us to two responses. We are called to either rejoice or repent. In response to what we see here in this passage, we, we either rejoice as those who are recipients of God or we repent as those who have deserved God's wrath. To some of us, this passage is a clear warning. Repent. God is going to bring justice to those who reject His rule. I, I love reading the Psalms. and Psalm 2 starts off with this question. That he says, Why did the nations rage? rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. It's this situation that the psalmist is setting up saying, why is it that all of these nations, all of these Gentile nations around us rage against the authority and rule of God? And at the end of the psalm, his, his admonition is pretty simple. It's just simply to kiss the son, to accept the rulership of God's anointed one. See, our call to you today is to come before God with humility and repentance and find grace from God. <coughs> Everybody got nervous when I coughed there. Excuse me. 
See, his son has died to pay for our sins. A freedom from rebellion is available to us. That if we see our need of grace, God brings grace in our time of need. But for us who are in Christ, who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, our call this morning is to rejoice. If God saved Lot by means of an earthly intercessor, how much more should you and I anticipate God's saving work through Jesus as our intercessor? See, for the Christian, we can look and be assured of God's grace and mercy, not because we're deserving recipients, but because we have the righteousness of Christ. This morning, we can step back and say, I can rest because I have that righteous advocate before the Father, because I have one who pleads his own blood before the throne of God, I can stand with confidence. See, while Abraham and Moses and all of these people, they were left to kind of plead this logic before God, Jesus himself pleads his own blood on our behalf. He shows the righteous blood that he shed for your sins and my sins. This morning, what that means is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we no longer have to be caught up in our guilt, weighed down by our sins, overcome by our wrongdoings. Now we find grace and mercy in Christ. I wonder if you've ever done this before. You do something that you recognize is sinful, it's wrong. And you're so frustrated with yourself, you're convinced that you're going uh, to kind of pay for that sin by just keeping yourself in this sense of bondage for a few days. Maybe you're messed up like I am, and you try to kind of, in, in a sense, say, I'm not ready to be joyful yet because I'm still kind of uh, mad at myself about my sin. And what we do is we try to self-atone. We, we self-atone for, for the sinful things we've done. We, we try to pay for our sin by ourselves. Can I just tell you that that's opposite and contrary to receiving grace from God? As much as we talk about grace, I think some of us, it's such a hard thing for us to live in that reality. To live in the reality right now, there is an intercessor before God the Father who pleads a better word on your behalf. And not only does he plead a better word uh, for the things that you've recognized are wrong, he also pleads a better word for the things you haven't recognized are wrong, for the sins you've failed to account for. This is the grace of God. This is what it means for us to have one who intercedes on our behalf. This morning, I want to pray that, that God allows us to sense what it means for us to have that advocate before the Father. What it means for us to have Jesus pleading his better word. And for us to walk in his grace and mercy. Let's be a people who cling to the gospel and find God's goodness and mercy there. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would allow us to know your grace. 
to not just give verbal assent or mental assent to grace. Father, to, to walk in the reality of your grace. Lord, even now, as Paul says, you've given us, uh, you've seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ. Lord, what you've started, you will bring to completion. We recognize that neither height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate us from your love, which is in Christ. So, Lord, we rest in that this morning. Make us people who are marked by a sincere devotion to your grace and your kindness to us in Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.